The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, we're going to resume uh, our uh, basics of biblical counseling, and so let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for another Lord's Day. We pray for your help now. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, not only edify us, but we pray that you would equip us to um, not only to help others, but Lord, uh, even to be motivated to, uh, to get help when we need it. And so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. So we're not going to review the whole thing, we're just going to point out that the last time we covered... Uh, investigation, and this is where we are um, listening well, right? And we don't want to jump to conclusions. Um, we need to ask questions, and we we gave an outline of what those questions should be uh, following the uh, acronym of PREACH, all right? And then we wrapped up that section on investigation with trying to determine if the person is a believer. And so then we said, you need to try to determine their spiritual condition. We used 1 Thessalonians 5.14 as an example. And then we uh, also um, said that you should try to pick up on uh, nonverbal clues, Right? nonverbal communication, all right? And then we looked at interpretation, and when we talk about interpretation, what were some of the critical things that we, that we noted last week under interpretation? First of all, what are you doing under this eye of the seven eyes? Now, don't depress me, because then I'll come to you for counsel, and you won't know how to do this part. <laughs> okay, so, so that's under investigation. Under interpretation, we're doing something different. What's that? Yes, that would be better than what's happening right now. <laughs> yeah, so I would say those are the three primary things under... Um, under interpretation. So what you're doing is you're trying, to, you're trying to draw conclusions based on the discussion, based on the data, based on the conversations. And then, uh, it's, and it's really important that we distinguish between symptoms and causes, right? So when somebody feels like they need help, is it normally going to be because they've identified the cause or they're having to deal with unpleasant um, circumstances or, uh, in a sense, symptoms? Yeah, it's the latter. There there are typically symptoms that are going on in their life, and uh, those things are problematic for any number of reasons, right? We're being very uh, generic here. Um, but a lot of times when people come in, they don't, um, they don't actually come in because they themselves have identified the cause. So you can think of, for instance, uh, a couple comes in and um, they say, uh, hey, we need help. We're, we're not uh, communicating very well. 
Is that probably the only issue going on as to why they don't communicate well? <laughs> no, there are going to be other things, right? And so as you, as you are in the investigation or the uh, interpretation uh, phase, what you're doing is you're trying to draw conclusions and you're trying to understand the difference between causes and symptoms. But then, and this is an important thing, is that you have to remain, and I, I use the word fluid in your, in your conclusions, because you may end up picking up more information after you've drawn an initial conclusion that, that you may end up realizing, I didn't actually have that, I didn't have that right right? And so there's, there's by the way, there's no uh, virtue whatsoever in, um, in trying to be right when you're counseling somebody, right? There, there's no reason to die on a hill. You're there to help them. And so if you're wrong, readjust, okay? Okay. Um, then we talked about instruction and what is uh, what were a few points under instruction. We can have Jessica read them for us if we can't remember. Instruction. <laughs> okay, have an open Bible, right? We're going to instruct them from your vast experience and wisdom. No. Um, you're going to instruct them from the Bible, right? Uh, you want them to see the text. You want them to read the text. You want to engage in the text, right? So you have to properly uh, or instruct them properly in the Scripture. Um, what are some other issues on instruction that you might want to just remember, Okay, kind, gentle, and firm. Do we have biblical warrant to be kind? Okay. By the way, over the years, uh, the biblical counseling movement has sometimes suffered from a, um, a, a perception that biblical counselors are anything but kind. Right? You know what, Ray? Here's your problem. This, this, this. Come back next week, yeah, and this and this and this and this. But we I'll be dead before we get to this, this, and this. But that's your problem, and now you gotta do this, this, and this, and come back next week, and if you haven't done it, forget it. Right? That's sometimes the perception of biblical counseling. And I want to say that that is a misperception. I've never actually met somebody that that looks at trying to help somebody like that, all right? So you want to be gentle, you want to be kind, but you also want to be firm, okay? You want to be firm. Um, if, there are, if there are sin issues that are being exposed, then you can't actually end up, you know, I mean, so if you have a person and, and they're, they're coming in because their marriage has fallen apart and you start picking up on, cues of their particular sin and they turn around and they go well you know what I mean you know if my wife wasn't like this or she didn't do that or didn't say that then I never would have done this and if you just go you know okay well I need to be gentle and kind and you go oh okay well I feel your pain you're not helping 
You're not helping. You actually have to speak the truth in love when there's sin involved, right? And so we're, we're firm on those things. And then um, we'll move on to intention now. This is where we, where we left off under intention. So you got instruction, but now intention. So intention is the idea that counseling is more than instruction. It's more than instruction. Um, what, does it, what, what does it actually, what does it take and what does it look like for the so-called counselee to actually change? Mere, mere instruction? Given the right Bible verses? No. They actually have to repent and then obey the word, right? Is, is there biblical warrant to say you must uh, you're, repent? The counselee is responsible to repent. The answer is, of course. Classic text, 2 Corinthians, and we're going we're gonna to spend a little bit of time on this issue of repentance so, by the way, uh, Paul's uh, dealing with the Corinthians is incredibly instructive for us. Paul wrote a severe letter, what he calls the letter of tears in chapter 2. It is a letter that, that we don't have. It's not extant. That is, it's not in existence. We know that because the way he describes the letter does not fit 1 Corinthians. Okay? So Paul writes a severe letter. He is anxious about how they're going to respond. Um, He sends that letter with Titus. Titus brings back the response. By the way, all of this comes from internal evidence in 2 Corinthians itself. Um, And so Paul understood that, that what he called that sorrowful letter or the severe letter or the letter of tears actually did its work not in everybody, but in the majority of the Corinthians, all right? And so, if you look, starting at verse 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. So, is, is Paul contradicting himself? What is he saying? I didn't regret it, but I did regret it. What's that? Okay. Do you know why Paul says that? I didn't regret it, although I did regret it. Caused you sorrow. It's because he's a human being. <laughs> and he's dealing with other human beings. And he, it's, it's like... Paul would have just been a little weird if he'd have said, I know I caused you sorrow, and I didn't regret it for a minute. In fact, I loved it, right? So he's human, and so there's this, there's this pull in his heart, and so now, verse 9, he says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. In other words, grieving you was not my goal. Grieving you to the point of repentance was my goal. 
For that you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow is produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. And notice there's something here. Paul actually describes for us two, we could say it like this, two kinds of repentance. A repentance that comes from godly sorrow that leads to life and a repentance that is a worldly sorrow that only leads to death. How important is it that we understand the distinction between those two as we're trying to deal with somebody's soul? You you have to understand the distinction. Is it possible that an unrepentant person will be sorry for the things they've done? Of course. By the way, just the sense of sorrow or even guilt is not a demonstration of true repentance. So, I have... um, I'm going to try to get more of these. Uh, These are from Jim Neuheiser little cards. So Nathan, if you could put up the uh, repentance. I hope that you guys can see this. All right, that's pretty good. So, so this is from Jim, and, and um, these are actually just good to keep in your Bible, so I'll order uh, more. So Jim says from the, the scriptures, there's seven traits of worldly sorrow. Notice, I don't know if you can see that underneath 1 Corinthians 7, 10b, it should be 2 Corinthians. So, first of all, worldly sorrow is just self-focused. Okay? That is, you can have a person that's really sorry for the stuff that they've done, but what they're ultimately sorry about is not how it's affected other people, but simply how it's affected themselves. All right? Okay? You see that, right? Um, for instance, you've got Cain and Saul. Both of them expressed some degree of acknowledging their sin, but did they do it in a way that was actually focused on others, right? So did Cain know that he was an angry person? The answer is is yes, he did. Did God warn him about being an angry person? Yes, he did. Did he turn around and master that anger, or did he vent that anger against his brother? Totally focused on self. Saul is even a more blatant example, right? Um, Is Saul caught red-handed disobeying God? Right. Does he pretend that he obeyed God in 1 Samuel 15? He pretends that he obeys God. And then, of course, Samuel says, well, if that's the case, then what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? And then, of course, he makes a lame excuse, all right? And Saul is so completely self-focused that he is not concerned about how his sin impacted anybody else. So the first trait of worldly sorrow is that it is self-focused, right? And so... When you're talking to somebody, 
Let's say, let's say you're dealing with a spouse that's been unfaithful and you end up, uh, you're talking and, and, and everything they say about their sin is how it affected them. Okay? You do know this happens, right? Okay? It's not real repentance. Second trait, hates the consequences of sin. In fact, this may be what they're more sorry about than anything. Are there consequences of sin? The answer is, of course, there are consequences to sin. The person that has worldly sorrow is more sorry about the consequences of their sin than actually the sin itself. Number uh, three, self-protective. What do we mean by self-protective? What's another word? Okay, you can be self-protective by blame shifting, but I'm looking for something a little simpler. It's defensive. If you have somebody that's professing to be repentant and you're asking them hard questions and the only thing they come back with is defensiveness, then guess what? That's not a good sign. When we see the, the traits of godly sorrow, then we're going to see the corollary. But let me just say that when a person is genuinely repentant, at that point, they, they realize that they have nothing more to protect. If you're broken over your sin, what do you want to protect? If you want to keep protecting self, you're not broken over your sin. It's that simple. Uh, next is blame others. This, of course, is classic. Starts at the fall. <laughs> Imagine this. Blame shifting starts on the saddest day of human history. That is the fall, right? Um, so who does, who does Adam blame? Who does Eve blame? The serpent. By the way, Adam's blame is not just Eve. There's an underhanded blame with Adam, isn't there? The woman whom you gave me. Lord, I wouldn't be in this mess if you wouldn't have given that woman to me. Giraffe would have been a far better companion. So blame shifting, shifting the blame to others. Of course, Saul Saul was actually, he's sort of like the poster child for blame shifting. And then... And this one is, this one is crucial. Demand, impatiently demands trust and restoration. Okay. Now, when you have somebody and they've offended somebody else, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's somebody in church, uh, think about even in, in a marriage, to impatiently demand Forgiveness, trust, and restoration is not a sign of true repentance. When a person is genuinely repentant, they actually, they understand that the other person may be having serious problems right now being able to trust them. When a person's genuinely repentant, they understand that, that 
that, that patience is going to be the order of the day because trust needs to be rebuilt. To impatiently demand that the marriage or the relationship be restored, to impatiently demand that there is forgiveness and trust actually demonstrates that the person is completely impervious to the damage that they've caused. You got a haircut. Deontay, it's good to see you, brother. Almost didn't recognize you. (laughs) Number, sorry for that interruption. Number six, criticizes the disciplinary process. I wish, uh, so Charlie, how common is this when dealing with somebody that is, that ultimately shows themselves to be unrepentant, they become critical of the process. Okay, yeah, Charlie, for the record, Charlie nodded his head and said, yeah, it's pretty common, all right? So thank you for that, um, Charlie. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing. So, and I'll just, I'll give you a vague example. So somebody is in uh, seriously grievous sin, Okay. Um, deep sin, um, sin that is um, of the of the sort that um, you know, it's like Paul says, you know, this isn't even done among pagans, right? And you're trying to dig in, you're trying to um, uh, labor for repentance, and then at some point along the line, the person begins to complain about the process. You didn't follow Matthew 18 precisely. Okay. Now, in, it's actually pretty common. What are they trying to do by criticizing the process? Okay, so it is a form of blame shifting, isn't it? Okay. Um, but it's also probably uh, more uh, accurately described as deflection, okay? Deflection. And to start criticizing the process does what? It throws shade on their sin, right? Just kind of put it off in the corner. It's not now the main thing. The main thing is you didn't do it right. And so we've asked this question, in what universe is a nuanced criticism of the process more important than the grievous sin that you've just committed? Okay. Matt? What's that? Oh. Oh. Yeah, it's just it's a rhetorical question. Like, what universe is it ever okay, right? Well, the the universe of the person that is not repentant. Okay. Um, finally, unchanged heart, which produces no fruit. Okay. So over the years, you know, we had a we had a terrible case about ten years ago, and. Um, 
is it possible to jump through hoops and not bear the fruit of repentance? Yes. Is it possible to do homework and not bear the fruit of repentance? Is it possible to stop doing some of the more blatant, egregious sins and yet not bear the fruits of repentance? Yes. Many of you remember Mike Shepard. Mike Shepard used to tell us all the time to uh, be on guard against what he called the dry drunk. It's the person that stopped drinking, but they're still a drunkard at heart. So you got a guy who uh, is an adulterer, and he gets caught, and he says he stops committing adultery, but he continues to treat his wife terribly and still continues to entertain lust in his heart. Is he producing the fruits of repentance? No. No. In fact, the the language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 7 is, is, in a sense, a powerful demonstration of what he saw in the Corinthians as a result, which was... Uh, He says it in verse 10, so this, or verse 11, so there was earnestness, there was godly sorrow, there was a vindication of yourself, not making an excuse, but actually demonstrating a vindication of our repentance, when indignation, actually being angry over the sin, what fear, fear of God, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, in fact, the idea of zealously making wrongs right. That's the fruit of repentance. And so, this man that we had, it was 10 years ago, he jumped through certain hoops and did his homework. And Charlie and I kept saying, he's not repentant. He's not repentant. As long as he's treating his wife like trash, he's not repentant. Doesn't matter that he's not drinking a quart of vodka every night anymore. If he's still continuing in the same heart attitudes that led to this, that's not the fruit of repentance. So what, what are the seven traits of godly sorrow that leads to repentance Next slide, Nathan. So first of all, it's God-focused. Genuine repentance, first of all, is God-focused. Psalm 51 and verse 4, against you and you only I've sinned. In other words, the person that's truly repentant, it's not that he's oblivious to what's happened on the horizontal level, but he is painfully aware of what has happened on the vertical level. This has been a sin against God. This is not just a sin uh, or sins that have made my life difficult and have fractured relationships. All of that is, is true. But the primary focus is on God. 
I have violated God's law. I have violated God's holiness. I have offended a loving father. There is a God word, repentance. Right? Um, Second, hates the sin. This is one of the things about somebody that has a worldly sorrow is they hate the consequences, not the sin. Godly sorrow hates the sin. Why do they hate the sin? Because of all the bad stuff that happened to them? No. They hate the sin because they're focused on God. By the way, there's a way to hate sin that's not a Godward hatred of sin. If I just hate what the sin has done, then I'm not hating the sin ultimately for the right reason. Next, fully accepts responsibility. Um, This is... This is the opposite of blame shifting. So let's say, let's say you have a marriage problem and you've got, uh, so is there ever uh, anybody in marital conflict that is 100% innocent? No, okay. So is it possible to have somebody who's 90% responsible? <laughs> yes, okay. Now, the, the person who is repentant takes responsibility for what they've done regardless of what the other person has done. In other words, so we, we had years ago, this guy's no longer around, so there's no chance of you figuring out who it is. Uh, we had this guy and he was deep in pornography. And um, some of you remember Ernie Keno. Ernie and I confronted this guy, and he said, you know, if my wife was just more intimate, I wouldn't be tempted to do this. True repentance or false repentance? False repentance. True repentance just says, you know what? Regardless of my circumstances, regardless of the situation, I own what I've done completely. And Joss is here too. Hi. Wow, what a, what a banner day. So the person that just is not taking full responsibility right, is not owning. In fact, true repentance doesn't actually look at the sins of others. They're worried about their own. Okay. It's a danger sign when someone starts making excuses as to why they don't need to take full responsibility. Uh, the, the next category, concerned for others. Okay. Now all of a sudden, it's, it's not blaming others. True repentance is, is deep concern for others. So if you, if you have a situation where one person is grievously sinned against another, then the person that is the offender becomes deeply concerned about what they've done to that other person. 
about how their sin has impacted that other person. So let's say you have a dad that's wayward and, um, and he comes to repentance, but he has no concern about how his sin has affected his wife or his children. Is he really repentant? The answer is no. In fact, there have been times in dealing with people where they are actually so completely oblivious to the, 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 the pain that they've caused to other people that you want, you want to just ask them, what in the world don't you see? So David could say, against you and you only I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight, but was David painfully aware that he had sinned against Bathsheba? Was he painfully aware that he had sinned against Uriah the Hittite? Was he painfully aware that he had sinned against the armies of Israel, many of those soldiers who died as he was trying to cover up his sin, right? So there, there's, it's not as if the horizontal level is completely eclipsed. In fact, you are painfully aware of the way that the sin has affected others. Next, uh, patiently accepts the consequences. Um, you have a spouse, and they're slow in coming around. Um, you know, phony repentance demands restoration. Real repentance, I can be patient because I realize that the damage that I've caused. I realize that that this uh, that this person is. Um, is going to, um, this is going to take a little bit of time. Now, what happens if the, if the offended party takes longer than the offender thinks they should take? This is an easy one. What do they do? You continue to wait. You don't say, you know what, I gave you enough time, I, I, I guess we're just done. You're obviously just a bitter, unforgiving person. Okay? It's not the way it works. You continue to patiently wait. Okay? Is that hard? What, what do you long for when, 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 when you've been the, uh, the sinner, the offender, what do you long for? You long for forgiveness, right? Can you be assured that you have it from God? Yes. May it take longer with people who are not God. Yep. And so you're patient. Next, submits to discipline and accountability. The person who is genuinely repentant realizes that there are consequences and also realizes that they may have violated trust in such a way that accountability is, uh, is a requirement. So um, is there a difference between somebody whose sin is overt and every time they commit it, everybody sees it, and the person who, when he sins or she sins, it's in secret? If a person suffers, suffers, if a person is guilty of outbursts of anger, 
Do they have those outbursts in secret? No. So you know, right? You know. What about secret sins? Like sexual sin or sins of drug or alcohol abuse that can be done under the cover of darkness, okay? It's going to take longer to build trust with the person who's guilty of secret sins. And it may mean even require, uh, uh, heightened accountability because why? Do I know if the guy's not blowing his top anymore? I know that. Do I know the guy's not sneaking out after dark anymore? I don't necessarily know that. So, and by the way, notice, it submits to, right? So, uh, we had a a case one time where a guy had been um, texting another woman. And, um, and, you know, by the way, just as as a side note, it's always important to remember that there's always this principle of minimization, Okay, when a person is caught, there is typically just sort of a minimizing of the sin. So this guy was texting another woman, and of course it, he was caught, and the way he was caught was was stunning, actually, and um, and he admitted to inappropriately texting this woman. Come to find out, he actually was committing adultery with her. Is, was it reasonable for him to give up the password of his phone to his wife and to, let's say, another elder? Yes, absolutely. Why not? Okay, why not? Seriously, why not? When the guy says, when the guy says, well, you know, passwords are private. As if this is the new 11th commandment, thou shalt not invade my privacy, thou shalt not know my password. Okay. You know what? If you're repentant, you're like, hey, I'm accountable. You can look anytime you want. Okay. Are people sneaky? Are there times where somebody goes, yeah, here's my password, and then sets up another account? Okay. Um, And then changed heart that produces fruit. In other words, this is visible. It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. Now, is it possible that the repentant person is not bearing the amount of fruit that you want to see? Let me just say, it's not only possible, <laughs> it is probable, right? There are going to be times where, you go, where you're thinking, what I'm looking for is this massive bumper crop, and there's a little shriveled apple and a little shriveled grape, and, and so is it important to actually be charitable when it comes to bearing fruit? And the answer is yes, you can be charitable, um, but you also want to be truthful. Okay. Okay. So important to distinguish between the two repentances. Hugely important. All right. Okay. 
at great risk to myself and to the clock? Are there any questions about true and false repentance? I take no questions from you. Yes, Ashley. Well, I don't it it happens. I don't I wouldn't know how common it is, but it does happen. There could be somebody who the question is is are there times where somebody may initially show some of those uh, true traits of repentance and then kind of revert back to, and the answer is yes, um, that does happen. And so what do you, how, how do you deal with the person? Well, you don't deal with them according to what they did. You deal with them according to what they're doing. All right? Okay. So if the person keeps appealing back to I I really was, you know, repentant. Well, then why are you blame shifting now? Okay. I really I really did pursue God. Well, why aren't you pursuing Him now? Right. So, um, and I would I would be sure to uh, to put these in primarily, not exclusively, but primarily in the form of questions. Okay. All right, good question. Any other questions? All right, I take that to mean that that was so clear that all of your questions were perfectly answered, and we can now move on. All right? Chad. <laughs> the, the question is, is do we err on the side of, of being charitable when it comes to restoration? Is that basically the question? Or so, so sometimes you have the posture of hopefully cautious or cautiously hopeful, right? Um, in a sense, to go back to something that Ashley asked, is it possible for a person, let's say they've, they've owned everything, they've taken full responsibility, and then you're meeting with them again and there's this little, um, let's say, this little flare-up of blame-shifting, right? So what I would say is, you point it out, right? You don't immediately conclude, I knew they were a fake, right? You don't, so I think that there has to be a lot of charity Involved, it, not blind charity, all right, but there has to be some charity. And then, if there is some level of reversion going back to some things that are the, the, the traits of, of worldly sorrow, when you point those things out, the repentant person is going to see them. And I would say, I, I, would, I would urge a little bit of patience because they may not see them right away but they're going to see them, all right? So charity, I don't think that we, you know, and, and we want to be patient. By the way, you don't, you don't sit down with somebody the first time and go, okay, uh, God-focused, check. Um, hate your sin? Oh, nope, no check. Uh, fully, n- n- nope, not that. You're working with the person to bring them to these things, and then you're... you're you do exercise a level of charity, especially in, the term, in terms of bearing fruit, okay? 
Um, sometimes what we tell people that are in, engaged in conflict is um, that person that you're struggling with, th- by the way, this is, this is important, may not actually confess and repent in the very terms that you want them to confess and repent. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? That you, 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 could, you could say um, that, they, that they are confessing sin, but maybe they're not confessing it in the exact way that you want them to confess it. Okay? Now, there's a difference between a person that may not see the full implications of what you see. But there's acknowledgement, there's confession, and it's possible that they may repent, but repent in a way that's not exactly the way that you want them to repent. Especially if you're the offended party. All right? Is that not... Found that to be true? So what do you do? Well, unfortunately, some people dig in their heels until they get the confession that they want and the repentance that they want, and therefore they remain with heels dug in because it's never forthcoming. There may be times where you're dealing with somebody who sees their sin but doesn't see it in the same in the same contours that you see it you, not the same depth that you see it and it may actually take them a while to come to the conclusion that 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 you actually were completely right right but there's got to be humility on our part too is it possible that we may not be evaluating the situation with perfection in other words, may I, is it possible that I could be expecting too much in terms of repentance? Okay. So I've got, to, I've got to reckon with that too. Okay. If I'm expecting this person to be uh, Apostle Paul 2.0, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. Right? Okay. So the fact is, is a lot of times... We need to repent of our repentance. Okay? All right. Good question. Pat. <laughs> I forgive you. Yeah, this, this would be explicitly in terms of what we would uh, expect from a, from a Christian. Um, if you're... So Pat brings up a really important question, and that is, what if you're dealing with with family members, right? And you're trying to have some semblance of reconciliation and restoration, um, and maybe they're not a believer. Um, That changes the equation a little bit on both sides, both in terms of what we can expect and what we grant. So, all right. All right, let's move on to implementation. Five minutes to implement. All right, so is the session or the meeting an uh, an end in itself? Not at all. 
In fact, what happens in the session or the meeting pales in comparison to what happens afterwards. So how many times, those of you who've sat with people, tried to help people, how many times have you thought, that was really great, what a great meeting, and then they walk out and uh, uh, they sin before they get to their car. And then you find out that nothing stuck. So implementation, what this is, is that the real work starts when the session's over. <laughs> and so um, action and obedience and progressive sanctification, this is, this is what's required. And so what we're talking about is how do we implement these things into the life of the person that's trying to get help? And I would say that there are a number of things that are really important that we want to instill in people. And the first would be this, to make sure you've got a person that's coming for help uh, long-term. What do you want to do? You want to make sure that they're doing what? That they're using the Personal, private, and corporate means of grace. If you've got a person that's getting biblical counsel, and yet they're not spending time in the word, or in prayer, or in being with God's people, they have actually removed themselves from the very environment in which they're able to grow and to change. So... And by the way, there can be more good done just by a person being a part of the body and having good friends um, who hold them accountable and help them grow, right? And so, so there's a context of, of implementation, and that context is the means of grace, both private and corporate, okay? And so... It provides that environment. But then there's also, as far as implementation, there's the use of homework. We talked about this a little bit last week. Homework actually reinforces what was taught, reveals patterns, and tests commitment. So what does homework look like? Bertie, what kind of homework do you give most often? Okay, so scripture reading and then something specifically they need to act on, all right? So homework could be, um, by the way, I didn't bring it with me. There are these little spiral-bound notebooks that are scripture topics, okay? And they're, they're, they're pretty, um, they're obviously easy to use, but they come in pretty handy, so you want to give them scripture that deals with the action or the behavior. Um, so in other words, if you're getting help from somebody and you go through five scriptures with them, they're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're showing you the word of God, right? And then if they say, okay, so when you go home... Um, Make sure you're reading this once a day or, you know, and so sometimes that's what I'll do is I'll pick a a book of the Bible and have them read every day and then journal. That's good homework. Uh, There's other forms of homework like scripture memory. So let's say say somebody has 
uh, a, a tendency to always respond sharply to, they, they walk in the door and the wife says, honey, how was your day today? And he says, what do you care? And then she says, I don't really care. <laughs> I was just being polite. And then, then it's on, right? So what might you, what, <laughs> what might you want to do? You, want, you might want that guy to get some scripture hidden in his heart. Right? Anything that can, that can create even the slightest pause between what's in here and it coming out here might be really good. And so you might say, you should, you, uh, your, your homework this week is to memorize Proverbs 15.1 and Ephesians 4.29. The next time we meet, make sure you have those down. If I see you at church, I might pull you aside and say, hey, uh, you got Proverbs 15.1 down. Are you doing it? Right? There's also um, reading assignments, um, inventory lists. There's all kinds of stuff that you can use for homework. Um, one of the things that's happened over the last 10 years or so is just a, a, a whole bunch of series of booklets, all right? Um, what's the benefit of a booklet as opposed to a book for homework? Okay, less intimidating, right? Yeah, go ahead and read all 300 pages next, by next week and let me know what you think. Right? This is manageable. You... <laughs> Lord, come quickly. This is... This is manageable, less intimidating. Is someone going to be more likely to read this or instruments in the Redeemer's hands? This, okay? And so there's all different kinds. There's a little series, help. You know, this one's help, I get panic attacks. Um, This one, this is a different series, uh, this is, these are all by Lou Priolo. These are fantastic. And then there's another series, The Gospel for Real Life. And what they do is they address specific issues. And so you can give those as homework. And that ends up being really good homework. All right. Um, we'll go ahead and stop there. We'll finish up next week because the week after, next week's Christmas Eve, Right. Okay, so then the next week then would be New Year's Eve. So two weeks from next week. Two weeks from this week. No, Jan- uh, whatever January 7th is. However, okay, look, it's no secret. I've never been good at math, all right? Um, anyway, January 7th, we're going to start Pilgrim's Progress. All the books are out there with the reading schedules and all of that. So we have two more sessions. So what we will probably do next week is, uh, since it is is Christmas Eve, we'll probably do a lesson on marital conflict. Um, (laughs) 
or just conflict resolution in general. And so, uh, and we'll talk about more about resources because the resources are really a, a good way to help people. All right. Okay. Well, let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we thank you that your word is sufficient to help us in faith and practice what we believe and how we live. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us always just open hearts to what your word says. Give us open hearts to, uh, to be genuinely repentant people. And we pray that as we help others, you would give us wisdom, discernment, charity, and truthfulness. And so, Father, we pray that in the hour to come, you would meet with us and glorify your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.